It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. impeachment, Donald Trump's not one, not two, not three, but four different criminal cases, politics in the courtroom, 2024. It's the Will Kane podcast on Fox News podcast. What's up and welcome to the weekend. Welcome to Friday. As always, I hope you will download, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify or at Fox News podcast. You can watch the Will Kane podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. We are in the home stretch. We're barreling towards Christmas. And everybody's asking me, hey, do you have any ideas for last minute gifts? And shockingly, this is a year when I'm ahead of the curve. I've done a pretty good job of getting ahead on gifts. I mean, that's really a way of saying my wife has done a really good job of getting ahead on gifts. But I do have some ideas. And I think in upcoming episodes of the Will Kane podcast, I'll try to give you a few last minute gifts. I should do this sooner rather than later. So you have time to order the perfect gift for her or the perfect gift for him. But I have had a lot of you say, hey, I should probably do these Omaha steaks for my husband. And and I have said, and this is not an advertisement. This is now content around the advertisement that I do think a freezer full of steaks is a good way to make steaks or chicken or burgers, not a treat, not a production, not dinner. Of course, it will serve for dinner. But I have a friend of mine who um, is into health and working out, and but it's funny hanging out with him. You don't come away with that because we have steak and eggs for breakfast. But he's like, look, protein is what's good for you. And he eats it for lunch. And he does a steak in the air fryer which I got to learn how to use an air fryer because that just sounds like a tiny bit more patience than a microwave. And if I can have steaks with a tiny bit more patience than a microwave for lunch, all I need then is a Omaha steaks freezer full of meat. And so people are using the promo code CAIN, C-A-I-N, because it's 50% off. And I promise you, this is not a paid ad. I didn't have to do this. It's just come up in my life. Like, I don't know, a handful of times that people have heard me talking about it and said, do you think that would be good for my husband for lunch? And I think that the answer is what, lunch, dinner, whatever, more meat, more steak. Omaha steaks. A couple of quick things in the news cycle I want to talk about. I, I you know, he just... LeBron James make it, makes it impossible to root for LeBron James. Did you see the video coming out of California? LeBron attended Bronny, his son's first college basketball game, USC versus Long Beach State. And he walks in to the gym during the national anthem. Okay, there, it's everyone else in the gym is standing. They're all facing in one direction with the flag. And he walks in with his daughter. That's cute. He's holding his hand, her hand. And he's got a little bit of an entourage with him. They're wearing USC sweatshirts. And somebody's showing them to their seats. And that's fine. And maybe you get wrapped up. But you don't get so wrapped up in the moment. You don't even recognize that everyone else in the stadium is standing and paying salute, if not reverence, to the American flag and the national anthem. And it's a non-event to LeBron. And I don't even think it's 
because he's wrapped up in his own narcissism. I think it's purposeful. It's hard to watch the video and not come away with the fact he's making a statement. And then he sits down during the national anthem. So after the production of What's My Seats, while the young lady is singing, he then sits. And I mean, come on. You know, I saw a post where Terrell Owens, former Cowboys 49ers wide receiver, said he was shocked at the way the nation responded to Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. And it reveals what they think of us, meaning America thinks of black people. No, it doesn't. It reveals how we feel about the United States of America and its symbols. And it draws questions about how you feel. Terrell Owens, Colin Kaepernick, or LeBron James about America. You know, and I think it's a very logical, rational reaction. If you purposefully walk in like a sullen teenager who hates his parents during the national anthem and sit down, you have made a point. And so it's rational, logical for me to say, hey, what is your point? I'd love to ask LeBron that question. What is your point? Why did you make a point of ignoring the national anthem? What is it you think of America? Because without that answer, LeBron, I'm left to fill in the gaps. And it seems to me, again, I think rationally and logically, that you hate America. In which case, I would invite you to go play basketball and not just make shoes and sweatshops in China. It's getting confusing about everything that is headed our way in 2024. It's a year, as we've talked about, where, I don't know, are we going to have a soft landing to this recession? Is it going to be a hard crash? How many different wars are going to crop up? And how many of them will require America's full involvement? And a presidential election where we look to have one president tied up in court from four different criminal cases, and I don't even know how many civil cases in Donald Trump. And the other candidate, a sitting president, who's on the verge of impeachment. Why won't Hunter Biden sit before Congress? We decided we'd try to sort it all out, put it into context, and ask some of these questions. And understanding not just what's happening with Hunter and Joe Biden, not just what's happening with Donald Trump, but how it is the mayor of Boston can throw a holiday party that purposefully excludes employees of Boston who are white. All of that with Georgetown Law Professor, Fox News contributor, Jonathan Turley. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small as a homeowner myself i always have things i want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool with over 200,000 pros in their network angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. 
So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. Professor Jonathan Turley, great to see you today here on the Will Kane Podcast. It's about to be your year. 2024 is about to be the year of politics in the courtroom. And we're already getting started. We're already getting started with Donald Trump. We're getting started potentially with Joe Biden. And we're getting started through the prism of Hunter Biden. Now, you wrote a column recently where you were a little bit shocked that Hunter Biden called a press conference out in front of the Senate side of Congress to say he would not testify before Congress. You said of all of his options, that was the one option that he didn't maintain. What's going on with Hunter Biden? Yeah, I have to tell you that there are certain moments as a legal analyst that just baffle you. I, I take pride in being able to give both sides of the rationales for uh, certain actions. I, this is one of those that I can't come up with a reason. I mean, the there this is sort of a two-flavor ice cream stand. You know, you can appear uh, and testify, or you can appear and not testify by invoking the Fifth Amendment. In either case, you must appear. Standing in front of the Capitol and taunting Congress uh, is a rather bizarre legal strategy. In my view, he is in flagrant violation. He's in open contempt of Congress. He could be charged with that crime. It's very similar to what Steve Bannon did. And Merrick Garland, the attorney general, made fast work of Steve Bannon. I mean, he uh, that was a NASCAR pace from his refusal to an indictment. It was, it was only a matter of a couple of months where he found himself indicted and in court. What's also bizarre, Will, about it is that we now know that this was orchestrated by Representative Eric Swalwell. So here you've got a former manager of a House impeachment organizing the contempt of Congress to refuse to testify in an impeachment inquiry, which is a crime. I mean, I, it's, it's, it just cannot get more bizarre. So I'm, I'm tempted to ask, and you've already begun to answer the question that I'm now going to complete, which is, so what? So what if you defy Congress? I think, I think that 
Biden has actually asked himself that question, come back with the answer, nothing. So what if I defy Congress? And what you're telling me is, well, it's a crime, contempt of Congress. And of course, we're talking about Hunter Biden and the investigation into Hunter Biden's alleged influence peddling scheme that could include the president, Joe Biden, and House Republicans have called him to testify in this investigation. They would like a behind closed doors deposition, which you and I will discuss more about in just a moment, that deposition. But the so what is it's contempt of Congress. There's precedent with Steve Bannon. And you also made a point in your column to say he chose to stand outside the Senate side of Congress because if he was in front of the House, presumably the House sergeant of arms could have grabbed him and pulled him into Congress. Right. They clearly wanted to be on the other side of the Capitol to avoid any action by the House Sergeant of Arms. Uh, it does matter. I mean, the thing is, I think this was a colossal mistake. None of us thought Hunter was going to testify. So the House didn't lose anything. But what they gained is now an extra front. He could very well find himself indicted. The reason is that Merrick Garland has been criticized for years over his refusal to appoint a special counsel to look into the influence peddling scandal and the corruption of millions of dollars coming from foreign sources. But he would have a hard way to distinguish this. This is so much like Steve Bannon uh, that the expectation would be that he would go ahead and prosecute. The irony, of course, is it would have to go to the D.C. U.S. attorney, who is the same guy who refused the request from David Weiss to prosecute Hunter in D.C. for tax violations. So do you have any reasonable expectation that there would be some uniform system of justice that would treat Steve Bannon and Hunter Biden the same? Well, I got to tell you, I don't see how they could possibly rationalize by uh, not proceeding against Hunter Biden. Some people have suggested that this was really an awfully clever move because the vote on impeachment came hours later. Uh, I got to tell you that I, I don't understand that point, which is made by a lot of folks on TV. You know, when I testified in the first Biden impeachment hearing, I encouraged them to hold a formal vote. But I also said at the time, there is no requirement for a formal vote. The Democrats opened an impeachment inquiry without a formal vote. Uh, an impeachment inquiry has been going on, and I think a court would agree. But the other problem with this theory is when you look at the subpoena, it was actually issued under the authority of two committees and three separate provisions. And one of those committees is an oversight committee that has independent subpoena authority. So I can't imagine how a court would say, oh, well, do it again. It seems to me a valid subpoena, and he seems in flagrant violation. So I don't want to take for granted that anybody listening keeps up with every twist and turn of all of this, all of these legal dramas. And that's why I wanted to have you on today. And so I also don't want to take for granted that anybody understands, because look, Professor Turley, I, I'm an attorney, um, or at least I went to law school and I am licensed through the bar, although inactive. Uh, and I'm on news and I'm in the news cycle on a daily basis. And I don't find it easy to understand the difference between impeachment and impeachment inquiry. Um, I, I don't I don't find it easy to understand why on the on its face or on the surface, Republicans would want to have a deposition of Hunter Biden behind closed doors because everybody feels like we need transparency. We need the light of day. In fact, Professor, I had texts this morning from a friend who I used to work with in sports who I would I'm I'm guessing leans to the left. But his whole thing was, hey, 
why did it this doesn't make any sense let us all see the interview and let us make up our own mind now we'll just have a two different groups claiming victory or two different stories and i said no 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 listen you don't understand and i've made this had this made clear to me professor by for example, Trey Gowdy and Jason Chaffetz and others who've been involved in these investigations, you need the behind the closed door deposition because it allows you a linear trail of questions from an examiner, much like a real deposition, cross-examination, logical follow-through. If it's sitting there in a committee room in front of everyone, it's a circus. It's a sideshow with congressmen taking turns doing five-minute monologues for television, and you don't ever really get a cross-examination or an examination of Hunter Biden. Is that, in your estimation, a a fair explanation of why Republicans want to start with a behind-the-closed-doors deposition? Yes, I I think it is rather humorous to see Democrats objecting. They did this. This was what they required witnesses to do in the January 6th investigation. And the reason is that you can use your attorneys uh, and your investigators to ask questions of witnesses. It is a more substantive process. There's not this theatrical five-minute rule where members reclaim their time as soon as someone starts to answer a question. Also, it, particularly in this case, there's a reason for it. There are thousands and thousands of pages of financial transfers. Uh, those involve various people. They involve privacy information. They involve names that may have to be redacted. What you want to be able to do is to have a free discussion with a principal like Hunter to go through these things and understanding that when this goes into public hearing, some of this may have to be redacted. But the argument of Democrats expressing shock uh, is just really uh, just otherworldly. This is exactly what they did with witnesses. And in fact, they didn't call most witnesses for the public portion of the January 6th committee. It was a very staged event. They even went and got an ABC television producer to stage those hearings. And it's not as though those hearings aren't aren't recorded, right? If, if, if Hunter went behind closed doors for a deposition, there would presumably be a transcript and maybe even it would be on video. It is on video and they, they will be on video. Uh, and indeed, in the January 6th committee, they played deposition videos. Uh, they did it a lot. In fact, there was more testimony shown on video deposition uh, than, it, than there was testimony in uh, the committee itself. And so from Hunter's perspective, he wants to avoid that closed door deposition because it's a more thorough examination, right? He, If it's in the open committee room, he has Democratic congressmen running cover for him. He has, quite honestly, Republican congressmen who aren't as good at it, perhaps, who just use it as a stump speech moment for right. television or for their viral Twitter moment. So all of it adds up to easier opportunities for him to slip away. That's right. Uh, But also, you just won't get anything substantively done. Uh, That's why they wanted it in a public hearing. First of all, you start out by guaranteeing that 50% of the questions are going to be softballs or declarations from the Democratic members. At least 20% to 25% of Republican questions are likely to be repetitive or in some cases uh, poorly crafted. You go into that deposition, you're being deposed by lawyers, by investigators who are good at this. And the fact is, Hunter Biden doesn't want to go in there, I think, for one obvious reason. It'll be a buzzsaw. I mean, it is... Uh, that's the reason I never thought he was going to testify. I mean, it is very clear to most objective people that he was at the heart of a multi-million dollar influence peddling scheme. 
uh, right. involving different countries. There's not any good answers to a lot of these questions. So back to now the I don't think the casual even when I say casual it, it almost is is inappropriate because I think even if you're in on a pretty frequent basis on the news cycle it's hard to understand the formalities of an impeachment inquiry. I personally have spoken to the House Speaker about this, and I'd love for you to help us understand by moving. They've now voted for an impeachment inquiry. Um, like what happens legally, Professor, as as we move forward with the potential impeachment of Joe Biden? By the way, all this about Hunter Biden, and you've said it in this podcast, he'll just plead the fifth anyway when, when it's all said and done. So you may not be getting that much out of Hunter, but there's other people like Eric Schwerin who's testifying this week. So what, what's, how does this unfold? Give me the, the impeachment inquiry and in potential impeachment of Joe Biden and how it unfolds. I, I would presume over the next month and a half. Well, first of all, this is the stage that the Democrats skipped, which is also uh, rather humorous to see them objecting. You know, they, uh, in the second impeachment of Trump, they used what I call the snap impeachment. Uh, they had no hearing at all. They went straight to the floor. Uh, the Democrats really eviscerated uh, the impeachment process in the two Trump impeachments. I testified in the Clinton impeachment, and I also testified in the Trump impeachment, and then I testified most recently in the in the Biden impeachment inquiry. The difference is that an inquiry is exactly that. Uh, what was weird in that first hearing is that everyone kept on saying, well, there's no evidence, no evidence, no evidence to prove uh, that, that Biden benefited in any way. Well, that's the point of an inquiry. You have millions of dollars going to various Biden family members. Uh, and one of the things I pointed out in that hearing is it's utter nonsense to keep on saying that there's no evidence that Joe Biden benefited in any legal sense from this influence penalty. Uh, there are various federal cases, uh, criminal cases involving crimes like bribery, where payments to family members are viewed as a benefit to the principal. And by the way, that also applies to impeachment. I was the last lead defense counsel in a judicial impeachment. I represented the Judge Porteous in his Senate trial. He was impeached because of gifts going to his uh, to his family. Many of these senators and members of the House voted in that case. So many of these people saying you have to show me something other than gifts uh, to the to uh, family members previously voted that that constituted an impeachable offense. So so I want to be clear. So. And this is kind of tackling all the popular rebuttals that you'll hear on television or other places. The one that I don't have much time for is, well, you have nothing beyond circumstantial evidence. Well, we've sent men to death row on circumstantial evidence. There's this narrative now that circumstantial evidence somehow is not real evidence um, on whether or not any of this benefited Joe Biden. But secondarily, what you're telling us is there's precedent that even if it doesn't go to Joe, if Hunter's reaping benefits, that's improper influence peddling. Um, but then what do you do with this? I know this isn't necessarily a legal question. I heard Anna Navarro say this on The View. It's not a legal question, Professor, but I do think it's a question of um, maybe egregiousness or how how bad is the potential sin. If we presume that Hunter Biden was influence peddling and there was some corresponding benefit to Joe Biden, whether or not that's just his son enriching himself, as you point out, or there's circumstantial evidence that he himself was enriched from this program. There are people saying, like Anna Navarro, 
Well, that's everybody in Washington. Everybody trades on their last name. You know, what do you say to that from The View? Well, first of all, I've been a critic of influence peddling for decades, and I've criticized Republicans and Democrats. But more importantly, the United States has led international efforts to ban influence peddling as one of the worst forms of corruption. We have international agreements that we push through. This is corruption. It's not people that shrug it off and say it happens all the time uh, is utter nonsense. I mean, yes, it is a common form of corruption, but it, it doesn't mean that it's somehow less culpable. The United States has said that in pushing these reforms in other countries. But I got to tell you, as someone who has written about influence peddling for over three decades in Washington, I've never seen anything like the Biden family. I mean, this is a family business. This is not people keep on pretending that Hunter Biden is like the first time that the Biden family has ever been accused of this. The Biden family has always been accused of this. This has been the chief criticism of Joe Biden since when he was a senator. His brothers openly uh, uh, raised money off of access and influence with their brother. You can go back and find articles going back 20 years. But more importantly, we know of millions of dollars coming from some of the most corrupt figures in the world to various Biden family members, including grandchildren. The size of this is really quite daunting. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. All right, let's shift gears. I wanted to ask you about this um, story out of Boston, mayor of Boston. I believe her name is Michelle Wu. Um, Through a holiday party, for only people of color in the city government. Um, That invitation, I guess, mistakenly through email went out to something like seven white members of the of the city staff. And for that, she apologized. It seems like she apologized for getting caught or for inadvertently inviting white people to the people of color holiday party. And they're going to have another party, by the way, where everybody's invited. Now, I have enough, again, legal background to just just to get myself into trouble. But, you know, I do remember that, you know, formal government is not allowed to engage in race conscious behavior uh, unless they can prove there's some kind of strict scrutiny necessity for that race consciousness. Now, that's usually applied to laws you know, or regulations or whatever it may be. Is that applied to behavior as well? Like informalities, like holiday parties? It, I would think, you know, you can't in, in modern day America, you can't have on its face a race conscious club, right? Like you can't have a country club anymore. It says we only accept people of this race. Can you have a holiday party from a city government that says we don't accept people to this party of specific races? Well, first of all, it's, of course, not just laws. It's any type of government action. The government cannot discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, And so that involves programs and policies as well as laws. Uh, It is a rather curious apology. It's like inviting two of the three kings to the manger on a race base uh, and then saying, but all three are invited to the after party. Right. Uh, You know, it it, it doesn't. And apologizing the invitation went to all three kings. We didn't mean for the third king to get that invitation. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So you you really have to uh, step back, first of all, just say as a matter of policy. Uh, This idea that you will hold a holiday party based on race, 
uh, is really insulting to so many people, even if it could pass legal muster. And the fact that the response was, you shouldn't have known that you weren't invited, is just bizarre. This is the mayor of a major city that has within her responsibility the guarantee of fighting all forms of racial discrimination. And her only regret is that she let the white people know that they weren't supposed to go to the party. Now, whether this can be challenged, uh, it's a good question, because we have to look at whether this was an official party, whether this was be, was using official governmental resources. Many, it does sound like it did. Uh, in my view, that does violate uh, the anti-discrimination uh, obligations of the city. Now, you know, courts courts have given some leeway here, right? There are lots of um, special programs based on race that are used as outreach programs, educational programs, opportunity programs. Uh, so they can argue that this is part of that. But there's a there's a plausible argument that this they're engaging in race discrimination in an official uh, function. However, they dress it up and they dress it up talking about affinity groups or creating spaces, the new language, however they dress it, dress it up. I mean, I think we can all see the intention and the intention is, in my mind, transparently racist. And what I wonder is, in, even though you said there's some precedent, I kind of wonder, Professor, if there's not some legal racial reckoning coming for everything that has been indulged over the past roughly five years, wherein we've kind of embraced a new form of segregation, but it's done under that dressed up language of, of creating spaces at college campuses or for certain racial groups where it's, it's on its face exclusionary, you know? Um, and, and I, and I think that, I don't know the, the constitution that I learned about in law school didn't allow for all of this kind of stuff, especially if there was some kind of connection to government, uh, to the to to the government. I just I wonder if there's not some legal reckoning coming for the way society has lurched over the last five years. Well, there is a certain degree of hypocrisy from some folks on the left. You know, these are cities that have pushed anti-discrimination laws to force bakers, photographers, uh, website designers. Uh, to take any customers without discrimination, even if they have religious objections. And the argument is that you, you know, you, you cannot even put on a website objections to something like same sex marriage. And that case was just in front of, uh, the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court handed down some major, uh, new rulings on that for free speech. But these are the same politicians that are arguing that there should never be any discrimination in places of accommodation. And yet in Boston, they're saying, when we hold a party, we're going to racially segregate. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we're going to racialize this holiday in that sense. Now, I understand that their argument is, oh, well, we want people to feel comfortable. But these are, my understanding, these are elected people, right? This is, first of all, you're suggesting that the white invitees were, would somehow be intimidating or would 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 destroy the, the, the celebratory aspects of the holiday. Um, I find that somewhat surprising in Boston, particularly. I think that the argument that we want to make everyone comfortable has been the cover for every racist policy in history. It's the argument for segregation. We want to make every student comfortable here. You know, so uh, I, I don't I, What's old is new again. Um, OK, let's move to the other big, big. Um, well, it's not, I can't even call it a case because it's a 
it's a whole host of cases. It's the legal wranglings of Donald Trump as we approach the election year. The, I guess the most the most um, newsworthy moment at the moment we're speaking uh, regarding Donald Trump is the appeal to the Supreme Court of whether or not Donald Trump has immunity, presidential immunity from the uh, the investigations to him into him around January 6th. This went Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, is pushing this right back to the federal appellate court level, straight to the Supreme Court, which I've heard you speak about this. I've spoken about this, which says to me on its face, it's a it's a motivation revealing move. Got to have this happen before Super Tuesday. This shows me all this is is political. It's meant to influence an election. But what do you think is going to happen here with the Supreme Court? And I guess this is our first hurdle. I don't know. I can't even keep up, Professor. Is this the first legal hurdle? for Donald Trump or the next biggest legal hurdle for Donald Trump? Well, this has not been a good week for special counsel Jack Smith. Um, He has uh, been dogged in trying to guarantee that he can try and, in his view, hopefully convict the president by Election Day. Uh, The judge has been facilitating that uh, by shoehorning this trial uh, into a crowded schedule right before Super Tuesday. But there's an urgency in the filings by Smith uh, that it's essential to get this done. Some justices may ask, why? I mean, you know, they may not share that sense of urgency. You know, even if Donald Trump is convicted, it wouldn't it wouldn't keep him from serving as president. It wouldn't destroy his eligibility to be on ballots. Uh, and so the the some of these justices may say, well, I understand this is an important issue, but because it's important, maybe we should hear from the Court of Appeals uh, and then render a decision because that's the regular order of things. But for Smith, this is really bad, uh, a bad series of events because the judge in D.C. just stayed further proceedings. So nothing is going to happen uh, during this pendency. If the Supreme Court decides, you know, we can wait for the D.C. Circuit, even if the D.C. Circuit expedites review, that's going to kick any type of argument in the court into the next year. It's going to make that March trial very difficult uh, to hold on to. But Smith has another weird thing looming here, and that is I think that he has to be concerned that if Donald Trump is elected, he could self-pardon himself. So if this trial goes beyond the election, Jack Smith may never see the inside of a courtroom. And so that Trump could issue a self-pardon or his new attorney general could scuttle this investigation. So the urgency that you see in these filings is understandable. I'm just not sure all the justices are going to share that. So give me, remind me, because we lose track over time. You've got the New York case, um, the quote unquote hush money case, which you and I have spoken in the past, you think is by far the weakest, I believe, of the three cases. I don't know what the schedule is on that particular trial. You've got this case, Jack Smith's case in January 6th, and then you've got one in Georgia as well, right? Is that the totality of uh, criminal cases that Donald Trump is facing as we approach 2024? Yes, the strongest one is the documents case in Mar-a-Lago. That's the one with the strongest evidence, the most well-established law. That's scheduled for May, I believe, of two, of 24. 
uh, that could also move because that case is really heavily laden in classified material. I've been lead counsel in classified cases, and I got to tell you, um, they really move slowly. It is a nightmare to get through this number of classified documents, uh, particularly if you don't clear a lot of lawyers. In some cases, I've been the only cleared lawyer, which reduces this to a glacial pace. Uh, but that uh, is scheduled for May. The Georgia case is going through a bit of a change now. You've got a number of people that have pled guilty. Uh, so the question now is, um, how serious is that case? There's still some challengeable aspects to Georgia. The problem is that many of those issues have to wait until after a conviction. Uh, for example, I do believe that Donald Trump has a strong free speech claim to make. Um, they are criminalizing things that he made, he said in that speech. Um, I just can't see how that fits with existing precedent, cases like Brandenburg. And when it gets to the Supreme Court, I think all bets are off. That's regarding Georgia or is that's regarding Jack Smith's With regards case? to Georgia, Smith also has free speech issues. But for right. Smith, uh, you know, at first they're going to first deal with this question. But the really threshold question for the court is not the merits of presidential immunity. It is whether they want to allow him to leapfrog over the D.C. Circuit. Right. Right. So it's four cases. It's four. It's the documents case in Florida. It's the Georgia case. It's the January 6th case. And it's the New York case. Um, right. With and there's a lot. The, and there's a number of civil cases that are scheduled. And a number of civil cases as well. So what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, there's this the phenomenon, and, and I'm asking you a political question now instead of a legal question, but we're just having a conversation. I, I, I think that I'm I might be, especially when I was not in news, illustrative of the way a lot of people consume the news. That when something is ever present, it becomes impossible to keep up with. And so you turn the page. And I do think, honestly, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over decades has become that for many Americans. And even though it's always in the newspaper and at times on the front page, you know, their level of, of insight is not correspondingly is deep because they've tuned it out after some time. I think the war in Afghanistan actually reached that over a decade's time. Couldn't keep up with everything that's happening over there in Afghanistan. Trump's legal cases, I mean, what are they going to be in the news cycle every week? There's going to be something on one of those four. And then you add in the civil cases to your point. I think it's, I don't know. It's almost like it all becomes muted. I, I think the Jack Smith January 6th case and maybe the Mar-a-Lago case, um, are like flashpoints that might get a little more hyperbolic and hyperventilating. But it's my sense, Professor, it's just going to like, it's going to be this ever-present story that people begin to tune out. Well, I think there may be something to that. I, I think that part of the problem for the Democrats is that uh, there are so many uh, uh, criminal and civil trials targeting Trump that it does reaffirm this narrative. A lot of people are not focusing on uh, the distinctions between these cases. Instead, they're focusing on the pattern. They're focusing on the fact that this guy is sort of being pursued pillar to post uh, from state to state and going from trial to trial. These trials are literally daisy-chained all the way to the election. That doesn't sit well with a lot of Americans. And so you're right. They may not be focusing that much on the individual trials as much as the pattern. What real quick? That's what what an image, by the way. Daisy chained through the election with, um, what's the first 
what's the first explosion in that daisy chain? What is the first case that that really moves towards some type of conclusion? Is it New York? Well, New York is it, it, we, we're, it's, it's such a mess. Uh, we don't know what's happening in New York and how fast it's going to move. It's in my view is a pretty frivolous case. I the there are a couple of other issues that have made this week interesting, and one of them is that the Supreme Court took a case on obstruction uh, involving a January 6th uh, rioter or protester, and the court may have to render a decision on the scope of the obstruction provision uh, of what it can be used for. Two of the four counts against Donald Trump uh, brought by the special counsel are obstruction counts. And so that case could throw a new wrinkle into this for Jack Smith. Uh, this has been a problem for Smith personally, uh, with the Supreme Court slapping back on exaggerated legal claims. It was also the same problem for Mueller's deputies. Uh, they all were involved in Supreme Court, not all of them, but the, some of the top prosecutors in the Russian uh, investigation also overextended legal authority. So the question is, is this going to be a repeat where the court's going to look at the obstruction provision and say, look, there's got to be more narrow parameters here because otherwise it could anything could be obstruction. So to wind this up, I think I'm reading between the lines in everything you're saying here. Even though it's daisy chained as a constant throughout the next six to eight months, New York will come and go most likely. By the way, I think you and I both would express a huge amount of humility should this ever get to a jury. On what it doesn't matter how frivolous they are. These juries are people, and they're pl- people in political districts, and they'll come back with whatever they come back with. The law, the law aside, that they'll have their own opinions of Donald Trump. But if it never reaches a jury, New York is frivolous. Um, Georgia and Jack Smith, January sixth, are both about the First Amendment and or about obstruction, which you're saying we'll have some indication from a January sixth case on the seriousness of obstruction. And so the only those will be big big debates in the public sphere about about both of those things, obstruction of justice and the First Amendment, the limits of the First Amendment, which by the way, I think those aren't even close to anything that he said in any of those situations. But that leaves the documents case. That leaves Marilago. That's right. And in the documents case, you could see a new attorney general for a Republican president uh, really looking uh, askance at this at that type of case, particularly if the other cases collapse. You know, these types of retention cases have tended to produce short terms. Even the most uh, glaring violations uh, have produced uh, largely misdemeanor-like sentences. Um, most are not prosecuted. So the question is, if everything else collapses, uh, is the powder worth the prize in going forward on the documents case? It may be. Uh, what I've always said is that that case, if I, I've always uh, believed that that case was the most serious threat for Trump. I mean, that is a very damning record uh, of witnesses and, and documents. Uh, so uh, that's going to stick around. I mean, that one has legs. Last question. Everybody, whether they're on at a cocktail party, hol- Christmas party, holiday party, whatever, everyone eventually gets to, is Donald Trump going to run? Is he going to win presidency from jail? Set 
Mm-hmm. I, the, the likelihood of that, here's my question for you. Which case makes that hypothetical, makes that party question the biggest reality? And, 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 and am I right, by the way, and you, as you answer that question, am I right in thinking which case has the highest likelihood of making its way to a jury before it's tossed out ahead of getting to a jury? Because, again, back to the humility of what a jury will do, I don't trust a Washington, D.C. jury. So the question is, which of these cases make it to a jury to make that hypothetical a reality? You know, it's really hard because of the stay issued by Judge Shutkin, because most of us were saying that's the fastest horse, because the judge clearly indicated that she agreed that, that we should have this trial, uh, you know, in, in, uh, by March. And she'll probably, if she has the chance, try to find another date, even if that doesn't stick. So that was always the fastest horse, but that race has been called for weather. Uh, so the question now is, um, is the judge in Florida going to go forward with the documents case? Uh, that could move forward very quickly. The Georgia case is sort of weird because uh, there's a lot of problems. I think she's overextended the racketeering theory. I think she's going to find that some of these people that pled guilty are going to be nightmare witnesses. I mean, they it's not guaranteed that they're going to be good witnesses for the state. Uh, most of them took easy pleas to get out of any jail time and keep their uh, keep their bar licenses. So they may not be a great boon for the prosecutors. We just don't know. Uh, but all of those were, were just not uncertain. I, it's un, it's incredibly unlikely that the president will be in jail on election day. Uh, if he were, um, he could still run for election. That happened with Eugene Debs, uh, who was a socialist. But it's extremely unlikely. Uh, and then what happens after the election is anyone's guess. More likely that Joe Biden is impeached if you were taking betting odds between Donald Trump running from jail or Joe Biden not being on the ticket because he was impeached. Either way, you've got two presidential candidates wrapped up in their huge legal issues, which makes, as I said, uh, this is going to be a huge year for you, Professor Turley, 2024. Thank God for that. I mean, the less time we can give political analysts, the better, I said. <laughs> give it to the legal analysts. All right, Professor Turley, thank you so much. Thanks, Will. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Professor Jonathan Turley. If you thought it useful, share it with a friend, leave it a five-star review, send me a comment. I appreciate it. I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.